You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning. What a good morning it is. Amen? Amen. We're singing about singing together. We're singing about the sacrifice of our Jesus and it's a good day to be together. And I don't know about you, but uh, various styles, uh, different songs from ages past or new, uh, I love them all. And it's a joy to sing them with you. And it's such a blessing just to hear our voices united as we lift up Jesus, because he is the only flag we're going to raise as a faith family. He's the only one that people will see and find hope in. He's the only one who shows us love when we are often unlovable. And he's the only one that gave everything for us. And he's worth more than all of us put together. And yet he loved us so much that he died on the cross in our place. He paid our price of debt and sin. What a glorious God we serve who would love us like that. What a good God. And today we're going to be finishing up this series. You thought we were done because we uh, finished out chapter 4 of Jonah. But uh, I'm here to tell you the story doesn't end with Jonah. We've been alluding to it all throughout the series And today we'll be in Matthew chapter 12. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see how the story continues on uh, hundreds of years later that Jesus brings it up as the only sign that he will give to that adulterous and evil generation in which he was abiding. In fact, I say that same language can be used for our generation. And I don't even mean just for those outside the church. I mean, all of us have adulterous hearts. And all of us have hearts that lead us astray. And so there's no looking outside of here to talk about an adulterous generation. And we only need to look at ourselves and say with everyone else that, yes, we struggle with faithfulness, with fidelity to the one who loved us perfectly and lived life perfectly in his commitment to the Father and commitment to you and me, and then died on the cross in our place to pay our sins of unfaithfulness so that we could be united with him forever. And today we're going to look at how Jesus points us to that. Look, if you would, with me in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 38 and just go through verse 42. Uh, let's read it together, then we'll kind of unpack it, we'll pray, and then we will uh, really begin to see what the Lord is going to press upon us this morning together. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In fact, let me pray now for us. Father, we need you to guide us and lead us. Would you open our hearts to your truth this morning that we might be impacted and changed according to your word that you would shape us more and more into the image, the reflection of your son Jesus, and that we might receive the joy of knowing and walking closer with you. Father, we want to love you. 
we want to believe faithfully. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's go back and unpack it. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Some debate over that language about sign because they say that this is not just talking about a miracle because you could say, well, they've seen all kinds of miracles from Jesus. Enough is enough, right? When will it ever reach a number that convinces people? And here's a hard truth. There are no sledgehammer arguments to convince people to believe in Jesus. And that's because before you believe in Jesus, you are dead spiritually. And it takes the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to bring conviction upon you so that you might then believe in Him and be turned from dead to life. That's the scriptural references we see all throughout about being dead and made alive. And so we know that it's not just you can argue, you can't, you can't argue anybody into belief as much as we should try. You can't convince someone or persuade someone in your own power. And that's part of the good news about being a Christian. It's not our job to change hearts. That's God's duty. That's his work. Our job is to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them and let him do the work that we can't do and let him work in the heart and bring conviction and lead people to repentance and faith in Jesus. But here we see that they are asking to see a sign. And so we know that it possibly could be just in general, give us any kind of sign, but a lot of commentators argue that they're actually asking for something greater. They're not just asking for Jesus to feed the 5,000. They're asking to see a sign straight from heaven. They want to see the manna come down. They're not just asking for him to part the seas and to stop the storms. They're asking to see him actually show God in the pillar of fire and in the cloud that we see in the Old Testament. They want to see these signs that nobody else can do, that some sorcerer and some magician can't do. They want to see signs that only God can do. And so they ask him for it. We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them in this it's always Jesus always cuts through. He always cuts through to the junk and gets right to the heart of things. And this is his response. Look at it with me, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. We know the story of Jonah, right? We listened to it and read it and studied it for a few weeks. And that story talks about a man who was a called prophet of God, And God called him to go to a place where he was going to take the gospel, that gospel of mercy before Jesus, this kind of seeing through a a difficult to see through glass to see the hope and mercy that would later come in Jesus that's being offered even to the Ninevites at this time. He calls Jonah to go to this wretched, terrible, great city named Nineveh where they are the worst of the worst as far as Jonah's concerned. And he runs the other way. Maybe to save his reputation, maybe because he just has a hard heart, maybe because he's fearful, we don't know. But he runs the other way, and God brings great disaster upon him until the end point where he's thrown into the sea, and he's swallowed up by a fish. I know it sounds outlandish, but we know even in recent days we've seen it in the news. And we also know that Jesus speaks of it here, and historically we hear about it in other means besides just the Bible. We know it's valid, and the fish spits him out on the dry land, and he was swallowed up because he prayed to God as he was sinking into the depths of Sheol at the bottom of the ocean and asked for mercy and asked for salvation. And he says, salvation is of the Lord. And then the Lord, he spits him out from the fish after three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And he preaches a message that we all have heard before. We know he preached it. We talked about it the last few weeks where he says, repent of the evil 
that you've been bringing to the rest of the world, the evil you're living in. And what we saw was something amazing, that the people repented. We see it reiterated here, even in verse 41, where it says the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented. They, they took off their clothes. Even the king had put on sackcloth and put ashes on their head to show their repentance. We even saw the sailors that were on the ship with Jonah before he was tossed into the sea who repented and believed in their God and his God as well, and the true God, because of Jonah's preaching that good news to them by giving the grace of God to pagans when he was running from giving the grace of God to pagans. God is even sovereign in those circumstances. And we see him pressing Jonah, and he goes in, Jonah gives the message, and you think all is good, but then we get to the end of the story where Jonah steps outside the city, and he's mad because he's waiting to see God bring the hammer down on Nineveh. And he sits outside, and God even then extends grace to try to prove the point to bring heart change to Jonah. And here we see Jesus talking about Jonah. The question we left on last week is, are we like Jonah? Are we being like Jonah and not seeing the need for mercy and having a heart to love those that God loves with the love of Christ? And we see right here, when the teacher is asked, Jesus answers and says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what does he mean? Well, he clears it up for us in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A real quick point of clarity for us. Some use this to argue about contradictions in Scripture. And it does seem on the surface in our Western way of reading in the Greek mindset that this does seem to show some kind of contradiction. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Jesus was on the cross and died at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. on Friday. And then he went into the tomb and he came up again on Sunday. So he was in the tomb for Friday evening, all of Saturday, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and Sunday morning, he rose. And so many would use this to say, well, this, see, this shows this is a discrepancy in Scripture where it says that he will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But what you don't understand of just a cursory reading is that in the Jewish and the Hebrew faith, the way that they understood talking about days and nights was different than the way we look at it. In simplistic terms, their day went from dark to dark again. So the first day would have been Friday, and the second day would have started at dark Friday evening, our time, thinking about it. But not only that, when they use this idiom, this expression, when it's said that they, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, that three days and three nights is to kind of give this overarching pass of saying at some point for three days there will be this thing happening. And we have at least five examples in Scripture that point to that kind of use of that language. Not talking specifically about hours in the day, but just talking about day. Sometime during the day, this will be covered. This will go through. So there's no contradiction here. Just like everything else in Scripture, people can find things that they want to use as contradictions, and we can make excuses for not believing some story that's crazy in our eyes. But the truth is, the scriptures are sufficient and inerrant, and they give us the truth. And there are no contradictions in them, even here. And like many others around us, and even our own hearts, we want to see a sign. We want to see if I could just get this answered for me, if I could just see the truth here, if you could just get this thing accomplished for me, if God would just do this, then I would believe. And these guys are saying the same thing. Just give us a sign. And he says, there'll be no sign for this evil and adulterous generation except for the sign of Jonah, which is 
that the Son of Man will also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And he goes into verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, and this is the first of the commands that we see in this passage. Anytime you see a command, an imperative form, it's going to at least bring your attention that maybe this is what this is about. This might be what this passage is intending to do for us here, to really point us towards. So look, look at it again. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, look, listen, you ready? Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. And I'm here to tell you today that something greater than Jonah is here as well. It goes on in verse 42. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10. We're not going to go there, but you can go back and read the story. Came to see Solomon. Asked questions. Traveled the equivalent of about 1,500 miles before we had cars. <laughs> Traveled through the deserts to go and see this man who was blessed with wisdom from God. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And something greater than Solomon is here too. In fact, this is... A big point, if you go back to the first part of chapter 12, you would see in verse 6 where Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about the temple even. Because all the people's lives revolved around going to the temple and worship had to be at the temple and worship had to be all these certain ways in this certain place. And he's saying, no, 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 that time is over. Something greater than the temple is here, Jesus says. And now he's saying, hey, the prophets... Yeah, these all point to the right things. These are all signs, signifiers of the true thing to be shown to you. And something greater than the prophets is here. And he's saying, that's me, Jesus. Greater than the temple, greater than the prophets. Something greater than the kings, like Solomon, is here. So Jesus is even showing here in this one chapter how he's the fulfillment of all the roles that have ever been put out there that point to the need for the Savior to be not only our Savior, but prophet, priest, and king. All in one. And he's greater than all those we've ever had. Greater than David. Greater than Solomon. Greater than all kings. He is the king. The true king. Greater than Jonah. Greater than uh, Jeremiah. Greater than any of the prophets. He is the true prophet who fulfills all things and brings us the word. Not just in voice, but in action in his own person. And we see then also this, this one who's greater than the temple. Today is a classic example, the fulfillment of that right in our midst. Today we gather with different styles of worship that for years have divided churches, even to the point of them tearing each other apart. And yet we're unified in one place, singing different styles to the glory of one Lord, one King, one Prophet, one Savior, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Today we are here, not worried about the building we're in and not getting our hearts tied up about things because we know the one greater than the temple is here in our midst right now, and that is the one we worship, who is Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the good news about Jesus. He fulfills all the things that the Bible and the Old Testament points to. All the signs point to Jesus. 
And here's what I think is going on. At the very heart of this is kind of the question that they ask and the answer Jesus gives. And they say, we wish to see a sign from you. In verse 39, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he's talking about that he will go in the grave and he will rise again. But what I think these guys are asking and what Jesus is kind of responding to when he says an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign It's part of the root problem of all of us in every day of our lives, in every bit of our living. And I want you to know that at the core of it, the desire in our hearts that then leads us into sin, the desire within us itself is not wrong. It's actually put in us by God. Every one of us wants to be wanted in an ultimate kind of way. Every one of us wants to be loved greatly. We want to experience the greatest of love. We want to know what it means to be loved without measure. That's why we resonate with movies that show that kind of stuff. That's why we resonate and yearn to read books that talk about those kind of stories. Things that we may not have ever had in the way in which we read it or see it. Because ultimately, those things are also meant to be signs. But all of us yearn for it. God created us with hearts that yearn to experience love and appreciation and adoration to the nth degree. For those of you that aren't scientific, that nth degree, you know what that means? To the fullest, furthest degree you can possibly imagine. To the nth degree. To feel that kind of love, experience that kind of love. And he wants that for us. He's made us that way because he's always wanted to love us and adore us in just that way. That's good. He wants to love you that way. He wants you to experience that kind of fulfillment. He's not some kind of deranged, mean God who put that desire in your heart so that you could never have it, just so he could laugh at us. He's a God that loves you so much that he put that desire in your heart. And even though we have been unfaithful and we try to find it in everything else except him, he has overcome that in the good news of his son Jesus coming to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve so we could be reunited with him and become part of his family. That's how much he loves us. And his love is never-ending, overwhelming, glorious kind of love. And our hearts are constantly yearning for that love. And everything that he's done in the past is to point us to that by giving us sign after sign after sign after sign. And we love to see those signs. But the problem comes when those things that point us to God's love that are signs actually become greater in our hearts than the things signified. See, these signs are always meant to point us to something greater. These great things are meant to point us to the greater thing that is signified by the sign. Here's some examples. When we see or experience the selfless love of a spouse, it's a sign of God's greater selfless love for that in that while we were His enemies, He would come and die for us. That shows us the greater love that's signified in the love of a spouse. You know, I'll get a little personal here. Twelve years ago today, my wife graciously said, I do, after I asked her to marry me. Twelve years ago. Seems like yesterday. I know many of you could echo that. And she's loved me like your spouse has loved you. She loves me like no other. And I love her more than I've loved anybody else ever. But even our marriage, your marriage, is always meant to be a sign of the ultimate relationship of love, which is the covenant, faithful commitment of God to us and us to Him. It's always meant to point us to Jesus. 
When we experience the sacrificial love of an earthly parent, it's a sign of God's greater sacrificial love for us. It's to show us that God's love for his children is so great that he's willing to pay the price of our condemnation by sacrificing his only son for us so that we might be brought into his family as sons and daughters. That's a good sign that points us to the greater giver. And when we experience the faithful love of a friend, it's a sign of God's faithful love for us. Even though we are not always faithful toward him, God is always faithful toward us. Everything on this earth is meant to point back to him. That's why we can say, you and I were made in the image of God. Everything in us is meant to reflect his goodness and his glory back to God and back to everyone around us. And all the earth is created to reflect his glory. That's why Paul can say in Romans that we should all get it because when we look around and see creation, we should be able to say, look, there must be a God because it points to his greater glory. So everything we have is meant for that. And none of our love in its ultimate form is meant to turn on any of the created order. It's meant to show us the greater need for us to throw our love to God because he first loved us. But we often get it wrong. So our problem is not that we want that kind of love. Our problem is that we are seeking to find ultimate love and fulfillment in places where it will never be found. It's when we find ultimate love and satisfaction in the signs of God rather than in the person of God revealed to us in Jesus. As Johnny Lee famously said, we've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And it continues on. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. We're not evil and adulterous because we want to be loved beyond measure. That's a good desire. We become evil and adulterous when we seek the ultimate love outside of God, in the lesser things of this world, or even in the signs of that God has given us to point us to his great love for us. In essence, in that moment, we are exchanging the infinite love of God for lesser objects of love that can never truly satisfy us. That's the very definition of adulterous behavior. To step outside of the intended covenant relationship to find happiness and fulfillment in something that will not bring you that and drives you away from the one who is best for you. God created us to experience his infinitely glorious love to fill our hearts and satisfy our souls, and we are meant to experience that in the context of that committed relationship with him. And when we seek our ultimate fulfillment in a relationship with anyone else, we are actually living in an adulterous affair. And that's why he says we are an evil and adulterous generation. And let me say it again. We're not just talking about people outside of the church walls. We're talking about us. Here's the truth for us way to get it to maybe stick in our brains a little bit. An object's worth, this is the truth, an object's worth is always found in its being desired and adored by another. We're telling people in our culture that you have worth just intrinsically within you, that you have worth. But that's not the way it works exactly. Anything has worth because someone else desires it and puts a value on it. Okay? I may think that my most prized possession has a lot of value, but I bet most of you wouldn't pay for it what I think it's worth. <laughs> so it only has worth if somebody's willing to give it worth. I can make the most glorious painting, which would not be very glorious if I made it, 
But if I made it, I may think it's worth a million dollars, and you may not pay a nickel for it. So then we get into this relative idea where it, it means a lot to me, so it's worth a lot to me, but it's not worth anything to anybody else. When we aren't satisfied in God's loving us, we look for other things to prove we are worth something to someone else, even to ourselves. And that's where the problem comes. You say, I don't do that, but don't we? Don't we do that? I believe we're all broken on the inside. It's like a mirror that's trying to reflect the glory of God to others, yet it's a shattered mirror that God's putting back together and so if we've been redeemed, if God is working in us to shape us into the image of Christ. And so that, that mirror that's broken reflects things poorly. And so this brokenness means that we continuously seek to find validation for our worth in other things or other people. The evidence that we do this is actually found in the absence, in the absence of our validation, in the perceived absence of that validation. See, so here's the thing. No matter what you've done wrong, no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how little you think of yourself, no matter how little other people think of you, you're, you have great worth, infinite worth, because God loved you so much that he gave Jesus to die for you. And God's son is worth more than all of creation combined because he made it. And so you have infinite value, but not just intrinsically in yourself, but because God looked at you and said, I love you so much, I'm going to give Jesus to get you back. And that means you are infinitely valuable to him. But it's not just because of you on the inside that you're just that value. It's because God has declared it upon you, which is even better. Because his love is greater than your own self-love. His saying you're valuable is greater than whatever you think your value is. The problem is we don't believe it. Our eyes get away from God and we stop believing the truth of that. And we look for other things to validate us. Let me, let me ask a few questions and see if any of these connect with you. Do you seek validation in your achievements and abilities? What happens when you fail? What happens when no one recognizes you for your achievements? Are your feelings hurt? Does it make you mad? Does it make you sad? If we're actually living out our purpose, we're meant to serve and give all the glory to God. Yet when we don't get the glory, if it hurts us, maybe we're looking for the wrong outcome, even though up here we say we're doing it for other reasons. Do you seek validation in your image? In your beauty? I don't have that problem. <laughs> in your fashion? I don't really have that one either. <laughs> in your outward appearance? What happens when no one notices you? What happens when no one looks at you and says something about how good you look today? How deep does the satisfaction go when you receive such praise? Do you ever seek satisfaction or validation in your intellect? Most often I find that when this is my problem, I think we often find ourselves seeking such validation at the expense of others for the sake of our intellect. Making fun of someone talking about how we're better or we know better? Do we ever seek validation for our worth by comparing ourselves with other people? Last one, do you seek validation in the praise of others? Just simply because they praise you. You do things, or you say things, or you, you, whatever it is, just so that you get praise from other people. What happens when you don't receive it? That's what shows that that's a problem. Do you find yourself seeking it out continually? Because it never satisfies. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. We want to be loved. 
That's really, they, they don't want to admit it. They're actually trying to trap Jesus. They don't really, they're not really going to believe. They don't want to believe. But at the heart of them, the question emanates out of a heart that asks this question because they want to be loved. So they're kind of saying, if you really love us, if you really are who you say you are, if you really love us, prove it by giving us a sign. Show us how much you love us. They're saying what we are often saying. Whatever or whoever proves I'm wanted will gain my heart and my affections. Whoever does not prove they want me will gain my disdain or my wrath. So this is the question we always say. I often think. We, if God really loves me, he'd do this for me. God, please, please, please give me this thing. And we can want something really bad. We could want someone to be saved. We could want someone to be healed. We could want something to go right for us. We could want something good for family or friends. Those are not wrong things to want. But if it's a problem when you don't get it that you want to walk away, that's where the heart problem is. And the answer isn't just to try harder or just to be a better person. The answer is to run back into the arms of a Savior who loves you so much that he gave you Jesus and he's never stopped loving you. Put your hope in him. Run to him. Find that he's still there. Find that he's still enough, that he is sufficient. If God will prove he wants me, then I'll give myself to him, right? That's kind of the thought, but you wouldn't say it out loud. Jesus' response is different. Look at it in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I think Jesus' response, if I could sum it up just kind of in a more biblical, theological fashion in the gospel, would be more like this. I'm going to give you a sign. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to give you the sign you want, but I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not the sign you're asking for. I'm going to give you the greatest of signs that proves my love for you beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I'm going to give you that by proving my great love for you, by dying on the cross for you, and then three days later, rising from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell, In your place I died, and in victory I've risen to show you that I love you, to defeat death so it has no hold on you anymore. That is the answer of Jesus. And that is the sign you need. Look, Jesus could save your loved one. Jesus could heal someone. Jesus could give you the job you've always wanted. He could give you the toy you've been asking for. He can give you the child you always wanted. He can give you all those things, and it will never truly satisfy you. And if you put your hope ultimately in that thing, you will find that it brings you great disdain and great havoc in your heart at some point because it will not respond to you faithfully the way that only God can. So let it be that we do not look out for signs in other ways, but instead we look to the gospel of Jesus. Because I'm going to give you three things the gospel of Jesus does here that proves it to us. The gospel of Jesus proves we are loved more than God by any, more, we are proved more by God than any other person. The gospel shows us that nobody can love you so much that they would actually take your sin upon themselves and suffer eternity for you. Only God could do that. And nobody else has more right to not do that than God, who really should bring condemnation upon us because we deserve it by not living out how we were created to be, by being gloriously in His image, always giving Him glory. But instead, He loves you and me so much that He's willing to chase us down and die for us. 
And Jesus did that on the cross. The gospel also proves that we have infinite worth. I've already said it once, but just saying it again because it's that good. The gospel proves that Jesus is going down into the grave for us was the ultimate, infinitely valuable son dying in our place on the cross so that we could be brought back as sons and daughters of the king, brothers and sisters of Jesus. And his infinite value paid out in his bloodshed on the cross shows that we are infinitely worth it to God. And so no matter what happens here, no matter how much you fail, no matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how grievous the sin, you are always worth it to God. And you'll never find that in anybody else. Because although your spouse loves you, there are some things that you could do that they would walk away from you for. That's a hard lesson. It's a hard statement. But we know it's true. No matter how much your kids love you, there are some things that you could do or things you just didn't even do at all that they could walk away from you in. But God loves you so much that he chased after you and gave you Jesus and says, I love you infinitely and you're worth it infinitely to me no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it. I love you. And the gospel of Jesus proves our need of repentance and faith in him alone. Look at verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Those men didn't see Jesus on the cross. They didn't know how it was going to be done. All they knew was, God's offering you mercy. Repent of your evil ways. And they turned to the Lord. And we know they did because right here, Jesus is saying in this future event, they will rise up and they will accuse us of not believing. And all they had was somebody preaching to them. They didn't have Jesus even resurrected yet or crucified yet or Jesus walking and doing miracles yet on this earth. All they have was a preacher. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All she knew was God had endowed a man with great wisdom and she wanted to go see it for herself. The wisest of all men is Jesus Christ, the one who knows all things, who's become our wisdom and our strength and our satisfaction, who's become our sacrifice, who's become our justification, who makes us right with God. That one. And we, if we're not like her, she says she will condemn us for not going after that. She didn't even have the promises and the hope and the grace and the mercy of the gospel in Jesus. And yet she went headlong to go to what she had heard about God. You and I have an opportunity right now to repent. If it's the, for the first time, then let us not waste any other moments of our lives and spend it yearning for signs or missing the greater thing signified, who is Jesus. Today and every day is a day of repentance for us who realize that we are not the faithful, committed followers of Jesus that we are supposed to be. So let us not take one more moment and waste it by not doing it. But let us lean into Jesus and turn our eyes back to him. Let's not be like Jonah who ran away from the presence of God, who ran from the face of God, even though you can't do that. It's, it's insanity even in its definition. But let us turn our eyes back to Jesus and be face to face and see him and love him because he first loved us. And if you've never committed to relationship with God through Jesus as your preeminent relationship, then today is the first day of repentance for you. And you may think, well, I'm not there yet. You don't have to go any further because Jesus came all this way to meet you right where you are. 
And His Holy Spirit is here even now. And if you feel conviction in your heart of sin, today is the day to turn back to Jesus. Repent of sin and believe in Him as your Lord and Savior and find ultimate love that will never leave you without satisfaction. Jonah preached God's message of mercy to the Ninevites and they immediately responded in repentance and belief. This is the only right response. Anything less will bring God's judgment and wrath on us for all of eternity. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to bear the wrath that you and I deserve on the cross so that we could be accepted by God and loved by God, a love that is intended to bring us the great fulfillment, the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction we could ever experience now and forever. So I beg you today to respond to this gospel truth this gospel sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and believe on him today. For there is nothing greater and there is no other hope. This alone is it. I'm going to pray for us and while I do, some of our deacons are going to go back and prepare our communion elements to bring them forward. So I want you to know that that's for those who have put faith and hope in Jesus already. Let me say this. If today you've heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sin and you repent of your sin, and as I pray, you pray out to the Lord and you ask for forgiveness, you ask Him to save you, and you really mean that and God is leading you in that, then today you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. It is meant for those who have been redeemed, those who have been regenerated, born again. And we'll take it together in a moment. But before we get there, as I pray, as these men go to that place, I hope that you will talk to the Lord as well. For you have to do that with him. I can't do it for you. Father, we ask you for your goodness and your mercy to now be evidenced in your working in our hearts to lead us to repentance. I know, Lord, that you have brought conviction because I have experienced it. And I pray, Lord, that I might not be the only one. And so, Lord, I ask that you work in all of us to see where we might repent of not walking faithfully with you, where we might be putting our heart onto the signs and not onto the one who is signified, who is your son, Jesus. Help us this day, Lord, to walk more face-to-face with you, that we would not run from you any longer, that we would not strive to be on our own and do our own thing and ask you to do things that are lesser signs. For, Lord, you have done the greatest of all signs by sending Jesus to love us and die for us and then raising him up from death. Lord, you have proved your love. You have proved our worth. You have proved your commitment to us. So, Lord, help us to be committed to you, that you might receive the glory and the praise and we might be filled with joy now and forevermore. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. These men are going to bring these elements around. Let me have one, please. They're going to hand them out to you now. Just hold on to them when you get it. There's two little pieces to this. If you're not careful, you'll mess this up because I have a couple of times already, okay? Very lightly get the little thin piece of plastic that pulls up. And you can pull off that top part and you'll find this bread that we will use to represent the body of Christ. Then after you get that off, you can go ahead and open up the other part and you can get the the grape juice, which is the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Christ. So I want you to get that ready with these guys handed out. Then I want you to take a few minutes just praying, dealing with the Lord, and then we'll take it together.
I'm going to be reading for us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I just want to remind you that this is not the thing. This is the sign. And it points us to the one who is signified, Jesus. This doesn't bring you salvation. This doesn't actually bring you cleansing. But it's Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that brings the cleansing. His one death forever, one death, brings us cleansing for our sins. And every time we sin and repent, we are freed up. It's washed away because of the sacrifice of Jesus one time 2,000 years ago. We see talked about in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul recounts it. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This juice, this fruit of the vine, it's not really physically the blood of Christ. It represents it. And I believe that as we partake of it together, just like the bread, as we gather together as the body of Christ, that we are connected by the Holy Spirit and not just one another, but to Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit with us, connecting us to Jesus and the Father, means that this becomes a sign of the thing that's signified, which is Jesus pouring out his blood for us on the cross one time, 2,000 years ago, across time to now, so that as we take it together, we're reminded of, and it changes our hearts to desire more, to walk in the purity of Christ that has wiped away our sin as far as the east is from the west. Paul recounts that too. He says, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for us on the cross. And we proclaim it over ourselves now. We proclaim it over this community. And Lord, we proclaim it over those who have not yet heard it. So Lord, while we experience life and change and growth, we know that you alone are the one who can make that happen. And you have deemed us worthy because of the blood of your son Jesus to be the proclaimers of that truth as we go. So I pray, Lord, that you would work that in our hearts. And if there's anyone here who needs you and has not yet come to you, I pray that right now would be the time as we sing this last song, they would not be able to withhold any longer, that they would turn and believe on you, that you would woo them and that you would draw them to salvation. Lord, we ask that you do that for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.